The views, information, or opinions expressed during the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the individuals involved. Hello and welcome to Pseudo Intellectuals, the podcast where we discuss all things relating to politics, philosophy, and law. I'm Harish Baskar, and today we'll be discussing whether gun control does more harm than good in the context of a democratic country. Here with me to discuss this, amongst other things, is Malik. How's it going? Pretty good. Thank you for asking. Also here with us is Gun Grabbing Michael. How are you? I'm good. No guns equals no gun crime. And finally, we have NRA spokesperson, Abraham Litwin Logan. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. Right. So let's just get to it. Let's start with you, Michael. Why are we discussing this and what is your position on this? Uh, I think the reason behind why we decided to discuss this topic is because gun violence has become a very prevalent issue in terms of the American, in, in terms of Amer- in the American context. And the position that I take on it is that more gun controls, uh, more gun control laws would reduce gun deaths by merit of there being less guns within society. I think right off the bat, I can disagree. Um, as I think we all know, it's pretty much accepted that not only violent crime in the U.S., but also gun crime has decreased in the U.S. Um, you know, since the 1990s and generally over time. Um, also, I think generally, um, I believe gun control does more harm than good because, firstly, I don't think gun control is effective. I think it infringes on um, the important right to bear arms. And I also think that the benefits of um, having a well-armed populace outweighs the benefits of uh, potential gun control. So that's sort of where I'm coming from, um, just, just generally. I think where we should start with is um, wh- what we think of guns in general, whether they are right or a privilege. And I think that's where the debate kind of pivots. So I think Abraham has a very um, clear position on where he stands with regards to this. Yeah, I, I think um, inherently people should have um, the right to bear arms, and I, I don't think this right should be infri- infringed, generally speaking. Uh, I think there are some reasonable limits. So, for example, I don't think that right extends to owning um, ballistic missiles, but I think that right does extend to owning um, semi-automatic weapons or AR-15s or... Um, guns, generally speaking. Um, And I I think this right is incredibly important for two primary reasons. First, because it can um, assist in protecting against domestic threats. So I'm talking about home invasions. I'm talking about defensive gun use primarily. But I think even more importantly, I think the right to bear arms provides an important check on the power of the government. So that is to say that it's sort of the last resort against a tyrannical government if all else fails. So I I think it's a very important right for for those reasons. I think uh, on the face of it, I really disagree with what you're saying. Essentially, so what you've outlined is a big thing being self-defense, if I can sort of uh, just speak about it very generally, Mm -hmm. would be self-defense and protection against the state. Right. Right? And, uh, well, with regards to self-defense, I do believe uh, Jim Jeffries has this very interesting um, 16-minute rant about gun control, but I think I'll just borrow one of his po- the points that he's made. Uh, in terms of assault rifles, the term assault rifle doesn't really lend itself to the idea that it will be used in self-defense. 
it is an assault rifle. What, so, what is an assault rifle, Michael? I, I mean, you, you, you spoke of like AR-15s, like, I mean, Singapore, you know, like military-grade weapons that are engineered not in, in terms of like very specific warfare instead of like just having like a semi-automatic, like a Glock, for example. AR-15s are semi-automatic, though, and AR-15s haven't been used by the military in the U.S. for decades. So I don't, I don't know if it would fit with I think I, th- I think just the idea of having like a like a 30 round clip in any sort of uh, in, in any sort of uh, rifle capacity is something that <coughs> doesn't really lend itself to the idea of like defending yourself and also the fact moving on to the idea of protection against a tyrannical state <coughs> uh, I believe that at this point warfare has ex- has uh, progressed to the stage in which, I would not be comfortable with saying a bunch of, you know, people out wherever they might be who own a couple of rifles would be able to fight against the drones and the tanks that the military has. And I'm not really sure what your position is on that. But I feel as though sort of the evolution of warfare has lent itself to the fact that it's more difficult to stand up against a tyrannical government, even if it were to come to that point. I understand where you're coming from, uh, but again, I don't really think the evidence uh, would agree with you. Just quickly on, on clips, it seems you have more of a problem with clip size rather than the guns itself. So I, I th- I'm not sure an accurate metric would be to say assault rifles are um, determined based on clip size, as I'm sure you're aware that you know the clip size can be changed and AR-15s can have much smaller clip sizes than 30 rounds. So I think we'd have to come to a more um, a standardized conclusion on what an assault rifle is, because I, I, I'm not sure that an AR-15 would um, be a good example of one. But moving on to this idea that um, in the case of a tyrannical government, such as the US government becoming t- uh, tyrannical, an armed populace wouldn't be able to effectively um, deal with this new threat. Well, I don't think the evidence uh, would point to this uh, proposition. So I have a few examples I'd like to touch on. So firstly, I think the Vietnam War demonstrated that a modern military power can be effectively resisted by guerrilla fighters bearing only small arms. If we move to more recent times, in 1992, the United States declined to intervene in the conflict in Bosnia and Herzegovina after an aide to the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff advised the Senate Armed Service Committee that the widespread ownership of arms in the former Yugoslav Republic made even limited intervention perilous and deadly. And this is the primary reason the U.S. didn't intervene. Also, the Canadian General Louis Mackenzie on the same um, conflict led a United Nations peacekeeping force uh, to Sarajevo for five months. And he said that despite the tremendous capabilities, which I don't think you'll dispute, of the United States Armed Forces, he explained that the prevalence of arms ownership in the area caused him to believe that if American forces were sent to Bosnia, Americans would be killed. And this is because you can't isolate prevalent gun ownership. Right. And I think this lends itself well to the idea that with a unipolar uh, global order in which the United States is supreme, the fact that civilians own guns is a good deterrent to prevent um, the modern-day colonialism, as some might characterize it, or to be more politically correct, the idea of someone else coming in and freeing one's people, because that's a clear invasion of sovereignty, right? So I think 
in uh, insofar as guns are valuable. They're, they're valuable insofar as it serves the good of preventing external threats from coming in and taking over. This idea of, um, uh, I mean, the Bosnian example is a clear example of how states have deterred themselves from intervening because there's a clear risk to their own militia that there otherwise would not be if there were no guns. I believe there's also a point to be made in relation to the idea of there being a state within a state within some countries. For example, gangs and other such institutions can be considered a, a state of sorts, at least in Brazil. You have some, some gangs uh, that, that rule over certain, certain areas of cities. And within those areas, they're basically the maximum authority. And uh, some, some of these gangs are very dangerous. And thus, civilians might feel more comfortable possessing some, some sort of defense towards these, these, these gangs, uh, other than just simply the assistance of the police, which uh, at times is, is also known to be corrupt and can be corrupted. And not only Brazil, but Mexico would also be a prime ex example, the city of Juarez and the city of Rio de Janeiro uh, being uh, the examples I was thinking of. I, I think that's very true, and that sort of leads us to the cliche of, you know, if you enact gun control, who's going to follow the law? Well, uh, it's going to be law-abiding citizens, and, you know, our concern isn't law-abiding citizens, rather it's criminals. Also in Brazil, um, to my understanding, recently there has been wide-ranging gun control enacted, and the law-abiding citizens have been very concerned with this because it effectively removed one of their only mechanisms of self-defense. Do you share that view, Malik? I do share the view of these citizens. I, I, I do uh, broadly support uh, the, 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 the right to bear arms in uh, certain nations, and I believe that it has a lot to do with the context in which citizens may be in. In certain regions of Brazil, it, it, I would feel comfortable possessing, possessing a gun uh, because I would feel safer. Right, and I think um, all those points that everyone has raised so far fairly valid insofar as the idea of either external threats or threats within the state are concerned. But I think w if we move back to the context that we're discussing, in, and that's the context of the US, a developed nation, with um, where it's not just about it being developed, but more so the fact that the US has institutional checks in place. There are, three, there are two houses that form the Congress. There's the judiciary, and then there's the executive arm. So in that context, would gun control necessarily be a bad thing? And I think there are good arguments for gun control because there's already institutional checks in place to ensure that the military doesn't act and the Senate has to approve military action when it goes to war, for example, even though there is, there is clear evidence that the executive has used the idea of um, not declaring war but using drone strikes and other measures that do not amount to war to circumvent the use of Congress. I think um, the broad strokes is that if, some, if the militia or the government tries to tries to use the military to, to say take a domestic invasion of sorts or like go into a particular area it's quite clear that the senate would have to or the senate or congress in general would have to approve that sort of measure so i think because of the fact that there are institutional checks as well as the judiciary which has the constitutional power to strike down uh, all these things put together point to the fact that there's already a sufficiently robust set of checks and balances that we don't need uh homegrown militia in order to respond to that threat. I think also in addition to that, I would like to point, like sort of bring it back to uh, what Malik had mentioned before about uh, in, you mentioned Brazil, I believe, um, the fact that gangs have been very prevalent and they have like overwhelming authority and also the governmental systems in place, like the police force, for example, they are largely corrupt. So uh, 
with that, then of course there would be s- sort of it lends itself to the idea that you would want to protect yourself because that's the only way that you can provide any sort of recourse if anything were to possibly happen to you. But if we bring it back to the US, like a developed nation like Harish had stated before, there it seems to be a level of competency to the protections that the state provides. And in looking at it from that lens, I don't believe that your that guns would necessarily be a sort of something fundamental that you would need to protect yourself. Um, before I, I talk about that, can we just go back for a second? Given the examples of, you know, the conflict in Bosnia, Vietnam War, and then also examples how about the US and Afghanistan for, you know, fifteen years not being able to do anything or how about um, Chechnya, where the Russian army wasn't able to do anything a bunch against uh, you know a bunch of people wearing jeans and with homemade rifles? Well, wouldn't you agree, Michael, that um, a well-armed populace could effectively deter a tyrannical government? Before we talk about the checks and balances, right? Um, I do believe that there is some merit to what you are saying, and if we look at, say, for example, the Vietnam War, I feel that a very big factor as to why the US it was such a spectacular failure for the US was their lack of understanding of the environment itself so like you know you're talking about like massive amounts of tunnels being dug by the Viet Cong um, the the fact that the US were unable to distinguish between civilians and the Viet Cong themselves because they just had no idea who was and who wasn't an enemy and I think those environmental like the the situation that surrounds it, the context in which the war was fought is a very important point. And it wasn't so much so an idea of, well, the guns that I have are better than yours. It was more of, I understand the terrain. You can't get rid of the entire forest. You know, it's very difficult to hunt us down. So there seems to be some sort of, there seems to be some sort of deciding factor that may not exactly lend itself to the fact that they had guns. I, th- I think we could draw a very uh, strong comparison with the U.S., with Vietnam, given these you know, um, factors you mentioned, because um, primarily guns are owned in rural areas in the United States, and the military doesn't know these rural areas very well, just like they didn't know the areas in Vietnam very well. So I think a population which is much more armed in the U.S. than the population in Vietnam would be even more effective than in Vietnam. And even if that wasn't the case and the Vietnam War isn't comparable, we have, you know, other examples of like Chechnya, the Russian, you know, army, you know, you know, I guess Chechnya is part of Russia. They should have a good understanding of the terrain. That was this proven not to be true. So um, could we maybe find some common ground in that at least it's possible for a well-armed populace to? I think yeah, I would say it is possible, but also in, in looking at it in terms of, uh, well, I'm not very, I'm not really sure about Chechnya, so I'll probably just lend myself to talking sure. more about uh, Vietnam itself. I think it, in terms of the U.S., I feel like if, even if it was a rural population in the U.S., it would be a lot easier to starve them out if, if you really wanted to, right? Like form form a ring, surround them, and just wait it out. I feel as though it that might be a possibility, although. Highly unlikely. I find myself sort of agreeing in the sense that there is a very high possibility that if it was a rural area and it was really it really came down to that that 
I guess you could argue that it would be plausible that they would be able to hold off the US government. Although I'm not really sure in the context of today's warfare whether or not that would be a possibility. Sure. So I don't think we should get stuck on this, but I think it's unrealistic for the U.S. government to surround rural America and starve them out. But um, yeah, let's, let's not get yeah. stuck on, up okay. on that. Why don't we move towards if the U.S. has effective checks and balances? And I know this is sort of veering a little bit outside of the scope of the question, but I think it's really important to discuss. So, Michael, why do, why do you think, you know, the U.S. Such as, has such a robust system or Malik or Harish, do you have insight maybe? Well, I do believe that some systems of checks and balances are necessary for a person to possess a firearm because a firearm is a weapon and it, it, it is potentially uh, deadly. I, I draw a parallel to uh, a, a driving license because uh, cars are also deadly, uh, a deadly weapon. Uh, when I was in driving school in Brazil, they told me that the car is the most deadly weapon that there is in the country because there's so, so many people just die uh, in, in, in the roads every year. And uh, you, ha you have to learn how to have a certain ability a, using uh, a, a car and I think that the same should be true in relation to, to gun use that people should undergo training and uh, should have also additionally background checks of course uh, before possessing a firearm because if a person is to possess a firearm they should be able to use it in a, a, in a proper manner and know how to handle them how to care for a gun and uh, also know that what they have is not something to, to, to be used lightly but to be used only when, when, when actually necessary I think also to add on to that, uh, firearms are responsible for 15% of child death coming to uh, coming in close second to motor accidents, which were 20%. So we have we see a very large, um, we see a, a very large differential between the checks and balances afforded to motor vehicles as they are to firearms. And so, say for example, 40% of gun sales happen at gun shows, which do not include background checks. You That's can just not true. Gun shows, um, the only cases in the U.S. when a universal background check isn't, um, sorry, a background check isn't enacted is when it's private sales between unauthorized people. So, for example, if you're my son and I give you uh, my firearm, that wouldn't be under a background check. But at gun shows, when it's an authorized dealer selling the gun, they're legally obligated to um uh, uh, to go ahead with a background check. Although there are cases in the right. U.S., of course, where it's private transfers and there aren't background checks. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, so, I mean, okay, even even if we take this stat to be not true, wouldn't you say that that's slightly problematic, for example, for if we relate it back to motor vehicles, that I could simply just sell you a car without any insurance, without any background check? I don't even know if you have a driving license. Don't you think that that's slightly problematic, having that, that avenue in which you could purchase a firearm? And I think also we want to keep in mind the idea of having some sort of check and balance on who has a gun, right? So bringing the analogy back to Malik's driving school and driving license analogy, looking at uh, whether people are qualified in terms of their skills to handle a gun, whether or not... Uh, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say background checks are necessary, but certainly technical handling skills are something that should be kept in mind and approved so that someone who is owning a gun is able to... Uh, operate the gun in a proper like in, in a reasonably proper manner sure let's let's compare guns and cars although i think the comparison is a little flawed inherently but let's ignore that but let's let's assume we uh, want to have similar regulations that we currently have with cars regulating guns so what sort of things would that be like are we talking about insurance or are we talking about 
you know, driving school? Are we talking about you being able to take the gun anywhere, just like you can take uh, a car anywhere? You see, there's a variety of things which, you know, may seem um, good to regulate guns using that, you know, archetype. But there's also a variety of things with cars that I think most people um, who support gun regulation uh, wouldn't want to associate with guns, such as being able to drive your car wherever you want. There's our restrictions on where you can take guns, and I don't think people would want to remove them. Well, I mean, you can't, we can't liken it exactly like sort of one to one on that basis, but I do believe that having the technical skills to sort of use a gun properly, the ability to use it safely and understand that you know how to use it, have some sort of licensing licensing relating to guns itself would be quite important because then the government would be able to know like who has and who doesn't have guns and then you could it's easier to regulate and therefore it's easier for you to pinpoint when somebody isn't supposed to have one and they have one anyway so i, I have to say that uh, no analogy is 100 percent accurate and that's why i recognize there are some flaws uh, with the analogy but i do believe that there are certain benefits and advantages to this analogy in the sense that as I envision it, I would require a classes, mandatory classes uh, on gun handling, on gun maintenance, uh, in order to grant people that want to possess guns a certain proficiency in gun handling. And additionally to this, uh, I would require for people wishing to acquire guns to have this, this license, which would be granted at the end of these, uh, the, these practical and theoretical classes in order to handle it. And in relation to your uh, idea of taking guns everywhere, of course, if you're entering a, another person's private property, I, I would say that they have to have restrictions in relation to entering with your with your gun into their uh, their their property without their authorization. I'm sure I'm sure you're aware that certain public property don't allow guns in the U.S. Mm -hmm. as yes, well. Yes, yes, I I I do think that there are certain restrictions in relation to public places as well. Of course, government buildings and other such institutions might not want to to have people with guns in, in their premises, and I see why why they wouldn't want them. So I think that of course we'd have to implement a study to implement the whole policy. But I, I do believe it's feasible, uh, and especially in the idea the idea of implementing classes for uh, uh, for people wishing to possess a gun license. And I believe that that's a valuable part of the analogy, and not so much the idea of taking a gun uh, wherever a person desires. I, of course, I mentioned the restrictions on uh, private property, and you've mentioned public uh, property sure. as well. And I think um, using the Swiss model, which also has one of the highest gun rate ownerships, is a good way to start off the discussion. So Switzerland has some of the highest gun rates in the world, comparable, if not uh, comparable to the US. And they also have like a licensing procedure where lo local police authorities have a log of whoever has purchased a gun, as well as what guns they have. Uh, local authorities are also given the ambit to conduct background checks, such as consulting a psychiatrist if they see fit. And they also um, make sure that at the point of sale with uh, authorized uh, resellers, that people undergo a technical handling test to ensure that they're able to handle the gun as they see fit. So I think that is a good model to start from because there is some sort of check and balance there and there is a record of how many individuals uh, are possessing guns at any point in time. Although obviously there are issues surrounding centralized data in general. Sure, okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. I'll try and go one by one and explain why I disagree with most of what has been said. So. Starting with the idea that we should have schools, you know, like driving schools, and once you complete the program, pass the necessary checks, um, then you receive your license if all goes well. So 
as Michael talked about, we have all these, you know, deaths by result of motor accidents. So it doesn't seem like these driving schools are very effective, considering that, you know, most of the deaths are causing, um, you know, by people driving their cars. And I know this is a bit of a, a silly uh, analogy, but, but I still think it's fair. And I think in reality, in most, in most of the U.S., if not all the U.S., it's actually more difficult to um, buy a firearm than it is to get a driver's license. In many states in the U.S., it's a very quick test. You're not required to go to a driving school. And it's uh, at less than a half-hour test, and then you just receive your license. And when compared to guns, when in the majority of cases, you have to go under an ATF background check, and you have to pass uh, these requirements in most states. So... Um, I don't think it's accurate to say that there's, you know, such a such a big difference. Malik, you want to jump in? I'd just like to jump in and say that I believe that if there were no driving schools at all, the, the mortality in roads would be even higher than it currently is. I recognize it is pretty high, but sure. I do think that these driving schools do do something in order to improve the ability of drivers. And also like to comment that I was I was thinking of driving school in a more uh, rigorous uh, sense. At least in Brazil, you have to do. Uh, a lot in order to to be able to uh, obtain a driver's license and i was imagining an experience sim similar to that and not as much as in the united states i do recognize that driving schools are perhaps a bit flawed in that uh country and uh i think also as a quick aside uh you i i think it's fair to say that people use motor vehicles more than they use their guns so of course yeah, yeah. so it would be fair to say that the rate of accidents would then be higher by merit of them being utilized more often would you not say that? The rate wouldn't be higher. The total amount would be higher. Right. Yeah. In, as in, in terms of, yeah, I'd like, then... But I the rate is also higher of uh, deaths by vehicle than deaths by gun, I'm, I'm quite sure. Okay. Um, okay, so... Uh, okay, sorry. Um, I, gu I guess... Move, well, okay, I think importantly is that there are states in the U.S. that require going through a course and receiving a license and then um, having a firearm. There's quite a lot of states. I, I don't know the states exactly, but I think what's perhaps most important is that there isn't a, a causal relationship between gun control, like I've just mentioned, so requiring a license and going through a course and uh, reductions in gun crimes. So I think that that's perhaps the most important thing, that the empirics don't really demonstrate that a uh, program as uh, you guys have described would actually be um, that effective. So I think moving on to uh, this idea of uh, registration, I think uh, intuitively registration seems to make a lot of sense. Why shouldn't the government um, know who has a gun and who doesn't have a gun? However, I think this lends back to our initial, I guess, um, debate, which is I think that registration would violate part of the right to bear arms in the sense that it would make it easier for a tyrannical government to uh, exploit their population and pursue the people with guns because they know they are the largest threat. So um, that is to say that in, for example, Nazi Germany, before um, they went door to door taking away people's guns, they required mandatory registration of firearms and there are lots of examples of this i just think it would be very difficult for the right to bear arms to act as a, a effective deterrent if um, the government knows exactly when where who has firearms and in reality who is going to register the firearms is it going to be law-abiding citizens or 
only or is it going to be everyone? Why would criminals register their firearms? So in reality, what would occur is that the government would, would know who is a law-abiding citizen and who has a firearm. And that I don't think is really important. It's much more important for the government to know which criminals have gotten. So I don't think it would be effective. I think Harish might want to right. jump in. I think uh, I, I'll only jump in to sort of uh, disagree with the analogy to Nazi Germany, only because Nazi Germany is an example of uh, where Hitler came to power as a result of him having a swing of popular votes in his favor, and therefore he became uh, chancellor, and essentially he he was the absolute authority. But we don't see that same parallel in the U.S. because the U.S. has systemic checks and balances in which there are three different uh, interdependent branches of government that have the ability to very strongly check one another. And so I don't think that parallel would necessarily apply. And I think moving beyond that with the issue of... Uh, oh, hold on, just before we move on. Yeah. Um, I don't think you're taking issue with the analogy I presented. Rather, you're taking issue with the degree of checks and balances. Yeah. So... What I presented was that first they force the registration of guns, yep. and then they use that to make the confiscation uh, easier. Would yep. you disagree with that? I, I wouldn't disagree okay. because I think that's a f that's a completely fair point. And you can see how registration would just lead to people being able to have their guns taken away from them, and then subsequently um, uh, oppressed right. in lots of different ways. Let's not get into Nazi yeah. Germany yeah, because sure. obviously it's a it's traumatic time. But yeah. I think. Um, that still comes back to whether or not it poses a real risk of sure. um, enabling a democracy, I mean, enabling a, a, a tyrannical government to take over. And that fear of tyrannical government is a fear that I think has been uh, overblown simply because of the checks and balances that are available in the US system. I think also, so you mentioned just now, Abraham, uh, yeah. about criminals having guns and they're not registered and registration would not help with regard to these criminals who right. would simply not re register their guns. So wouldn't you say that there are some restrictions in which we should attempt to make in terms of reducing the number of guns that criminals have? Or I think, I think of course we should attempt to reduce the number of guns criminals have. So what type of regulation are you talking about specifically? I mean, access to guns would be a big thing, right? Just like reducing the number of guns in general. Would you not say that there will be something that... If you if you accept that the state provides a significant amount of protection that you would not require for individuals to be carrying guns around for fear of being attacked by a gang, for example. Well, I wouldn't accept that premise. But even if I did accept that premise, again, that's not a specific regulation. So how would you specifically reduce the amount of guns in the hands of criminals? Um, I think just as an aside here, I'd just like to point out that there's a... There are a few studies that have shown a strong correlation between um, in increasingly tight gun laws and lower gun deaths. So an epidemic, uh, uh, 2016 review of 130 studies in 10 countries found that new legal restrictions on owning and purchasing guns tended to be followed by a drop in gun violence. So that seems to point against what uh, the idea that gun laws would not necessarily lead to a drop in gun deaths. Well, I, I, I was expecting that you'd, you'd bring this up. Obviously, I can't go through each study and explain uh, why it's misleading, but it's simply untrue to present the notion that there is an academic consensus that more gun regulations results in 
um, a reduced gun crime. So I'll just go through a, a few studies to you know share this. So 2001, there was a major study by Murin that found that. Oh, and also I just wanted to mention that it's I think it's more important to correlate um, gun regulation and violent crime because I think most of us would agree that if violent crime uh, goes up at the same rate gun crime goes down, it's you know still not an effective mechanism. If people are dying by other means other than guns, it doesn't mean that the gun regulation was a good idea. We can all agree on that, right? right yeah, I think it's, well, yeah, as in, yeah. it's fair to say, I guess. I guess so. I, if it's, it's, a, it's the same rate, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Sure, yeah. Okay. okay. So uh, this study by Mirren found that violence rates and gun control availability are not correlated. Another study by Schaefer and Kovenzik found that the beneficiaries of the reduced level of violence may include substantial numbers of urban criminals. So this found uh, sort of what I was talking about before. So when there's increased amounts of gun regulation and restrictions on availability of guns, who benefited the most? Urban criminals. So again, not the, not the same thing. Uh, another study by Langman in 2012 found that no gun control measures reduced homicides. A uh, study by Zioli and Webster that there was no statistically significant effects. Tomislav Kovenzik, a study by him, another one by Schaefer, another by Kleck, found that gun bans reduced gun levels more among non-criminals than criminals. So they found that it, there would be an increase in gun homicide rates because the decline in gun levels would primarily occur amongst those whose gun possession has pre predominantly negative effects on homicide. Another by Kleck in 2016 found that gun control laws generally show no evidence of effects on crime rates, possibly because gun levels do not have a net positive effect on violence rates. And then we also have the National Research Council, um, which found uh, years ago that existing re research studies and data include a wealth of descriptive information on homicide, suicide, and firearms, but because of the limitations of existing data and methods, do not credibly demonstrate a causal relationship between the ownership of firearms and the causes or prevention of criminal violence or suicide. So I think this distinction is incredibly important. You can present studies that show a correlation in countries with increased gun regulation and lower crime, but a causal relationship, which is what's important, hasn't been found, or if it has been found, it hasn't been academically uh, accepted. I think we must keep in mind the limitations of academic studies as a whole, which is that it's very difficult to show causation. Mm -hmm. And so at best, scientists use inductive arguments to point towards the fact that there's a causal relationship. And I think reflecting on what Abraham has pointed out, and there are numerous studies, I think, on both sides, mm -hmm. some showing that there's a clear correlation and some showing that while correlations exist, they seem to disparate the Sim, they seem to discriminate between non-criminals and criminals and then seem to benefit criminals more than they do non-criminals. So um, I think these are just inherent problems with decriminalize I mean with criminalization and with increased laws in general because criminals are never going to be um, they're never going to be doing the same things that uh, that that non-criminals are doing. They're just going to do whatever they see fit because, it benefits them in some way. And I think just, let's assume that, you know, everything Harish, all his studies are correct and mine are total nonsense, right? right. Um, I think it's important to note that approximately 80% of gun crime is uh, caused using illegally owned firearms. So in reality, almost all gun crime 
is not committed by people taking advantage of lax regulations. Rather, it's people in an arguably uh, unregulated uh, system choosing anyways to get guns illegally because the checks and balances on, um, on purchasing guns are, I, gu I guess, at least somewhat effective. So I think that's a, an important right. thing to note. And I think I, I mean I completely agree that w you can't equate guns to criminals, and you know like criminals will always do whatever criminals do, and the rate of crime is not going to go down just because they don't have access to guns. But I think there is there is a point to be made about having, if you were to ban guns across the board, it would be harder for both law-abiding citizens and criminals to be to have access to those guns. So say for example, I mean having grown up in Singapore, Singapore has very tight gun controls. Well, I mean, we just ban them outright. So right. you don't see, you don't. I think the last, the last gun crime we had was, I want to say like forty years ago. So, I think there is some sort of there is there is a merit to not having guns at all, which which is a rather radical stance. But there is some sort of merit to having no guns at all because then it will make it just as difficult for criminals to get them as law-abiding citizens. Right. Know. I think we also need to put the Singapore example in context. Singapore is a city-state in which policing is easy and um, right. so therefore the removal of guns is really easy. It's a snap of a finger and the city is able to enact laws and remove guns and eradicate guns on a fairly quick basis. But the same wouldn't be true in a large country like the United States with massive rural populations and lots of uh, different uh, neighbourhoods in which crime is significantly higher and policing is far more difficult than it is in Singapore. So, well, idealistically, I think it's important that we recognise that no guns really does mean no deaths. The reality is we're not going to be able to remove all guns, rather we'll be able to remove guns in which people are willing to declare their, their gun ownership and then respond accordingly. But then criminals, being criminals, would right. naturally have guns. So perhaps we should move to the idea of how we would remove guns from the population. So a largely popular sentiment points to gun buybacks, uh, what I would argue is gun confiscation. Are there any examples, Michael, that you might have where this worked effectively? Uh, I do believe that Australia had carried it out pretty well. Uh, and you can see there was a significant drop in gun crime following that the gun buyback, although I think you would very much disagree with that point. Yes, that's correct. So um, the four largest studies on the Australia um, confiscation were was a study in 2007 by the University of Munich, a study in 2008 by the University of Melbourne, uh, a study by Chapman in 2016, and a, ch a study by Kleck in 2018. And all these studies agreed that there was no um, decrease in gun crime, gun violence, gun homicide, um, any of them as a result of the gun confiscation. You're correct in that gun crime did decrease after uh, the gun confiscation, but it was decreasing at the same rate, uh, rate it was decreasing prior to the confisc confiscation. So can we just pinpoint what exactly the studies what, what was the reason, the large factor that the studies pointed to that led to a decrease in gun ownership? A was decrease in gun ownership? Yeah, was there... Well, was there, a there was a decrease in gun ownership via the government confiscating the weapons, uh, confiscating the guns. However, crime did not decrease at a faster rate. Right, but would you say now, for example, that gun crime in Australia is relatively... Uh, 
non-existent. I don't know about non-existence. It, it's lower right. than at the time of the confiscation. But I think what's important is if it, it was decreasing at the same rate prior to the confiscation and decreased at the same rate post-confiscation, I think it's hard to say that the confiscation was effective. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I guess. And also, I, I, I think it also lends itself to the idea that um, that criminals, again, it always point, comes back to the point of criminals. Criminals would never give up their guns, right? So that essentially, that would not be... Uh, gun buybacks would have no effect on the gun crime that we would like to see instituted, like the change instituted within that specific area uh, right or something and like um i mean addressing abraham's concern there are counterbalancing opinions in the academics research so a 2019 paper in prevention science which tried to estimate what would have happened had the australian buyback program not been in place points to the fact that the universal and abrupt nature of the australian gun buyback program significantly reduced australia's homicide rate in the de- decade following intervention I just think we have to be very careful with contrafactual thinking just because it, it, it's very theoretical and uh, I, I tend to be very skeptical especially of counterfactual thinking because it make many assumptions and since uh, that, that sort of academic uh, studies are based in, in so many factors that are unpredictable I'd be hesitant to give much credibility to such a study. And I think also, importantly, the distinction between the studies I mentioned and the study you just mentioned, Harris, is that in the study you mentioned they attempted to estimate the future essentially mm-hmm. right and then the studies you know i mentioned it looked at the past what actually happened and what actually happened post uh the gunman so i think there's a lot less likelihood for uh i guess guesswork in, in the studies i mentioned but there's also um i think an important comparison is new zealand which is a very comparable country to australia and that they have similar culture and New Zealand had similar overall trends in terms of gun crime decreasing at similar rates. So I don't think it, it was effective. I think um, some people have pointed to the fact, I, I, I was looking at a Guardian article earlier, which is that the, the purpose of gun buybacks isn't necessarily to decrease crime, but rather to incentivize people to vote in favor of gun control laws. So the idea is not just to... Uh, to reduce gun rate, uh, gun uh, homicide rates because or gun violence rates in general, but rather it's to put people in favor of gun control laws that might be more effective as opposed to a gun buyback program, to it in achieving the result of lower gun uh, violence rates. So the purpose might be a bit skewed. Yeah, I think that in and of itself is a bit problematic in acting legislation to try and sway voter sentiment. Also, given you know. Uh, I guess our dispute over the academic research whether or not gun control works. Um, so I just want to mention one more thing before we uh, we finish up. So in terms of defensive gun use, I think this is an important um, thing to note, which isn't commonly talked about. So in the U.S., it's generally accepted that there's between 500,000 and 3 million um, defensive gun uses every year. So... Uh, this is people using their guns defensively to, to stop crimes being committed against themselves or other persons. And uh, as I'm sure you, you're aware, this you know greatly outnumbers the amount of violent crime in the U.S. as well as the amount of gun crime and ben- amount of gun homicides. So I think this you know leads to the thinking that uh, 
guns are also good in the sense that they provide people an effective means of, of self-protection. Uh, I have a different source here. Sure. Uh, a study that state, stated that of the, well, it's like something to the, the tune of 29 million violent crimes committed between 2007 and 2011, 0.79% of the victims protected themselves from the threat of using or actually using a firearm. So in, in another study in 2010, there were 230 justifiable homicides. What that means is essentially the homicides are justified in the in with relation to self-defense. So there were 230 justifiable homicides compared to 8,235 gun homicides, yeah. which in other words would be one in every 36 gun homicides is justified uh, go in self-defense. Yeah, but you're only talking about gun homicides and I'm sure you would agree that a gun can be used defensively without killing someone in a whole number of ways. But the first study you're talking about is relying on NCVS data. Um, so this only asks if people are have been victims of a violent crime, which is inherently problematic since if you use your def gun defensively, you probably won't actually be a victim. So the data I'm talking about is whether you're threatened with a violent crime opposed to actually being a victim. Right. And it's also difficult to interpret the data from the first study because respondents were actually not specifically asked about defensive gun use. They're just asked more broadly. Right. So again, I think we see a little dispute about the academics. I think, that. yeah, I, I think we can go on about this forever, but I, I th I, this is a good point for us to wrap up. Right, I think what we've heard from all of us here is a diversity of perspectives in relation to both gun ownership, gun control, and whether or not guns are a good thing in general, whether they act as an effective check or not. If not, I think we should leave things here. Thank you, Malik. Thank you, Abraham. Thank and you. thank you, Michael. Thank you, Arish. A couple of notes before we go. If you're a fan of the show or you've just enjoyed today's episode, leave us a rating or review in the podcast store or tell a friend about us. To stay up to date, make sure to subscribe to our show you can reach out to us on Twitter at pseudointpod or follow us on Instagram at pseudointellectualspod or like our page on Facebook at pseudointellectualspod. Thank you for listening and you'll hear from us again soon. The views, information or opinions expressed during the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the individuals involved.